Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, and I am actually not in the studio live today. I still have something for you. We've already offered you kind of in the commemoration of sorts uh, of our 30th anniversary year for Stand a Reason. Uh, we've offered a classic uh, from the past, part one. In this session, we're going to give you part two of that ambassador basic curriculum classic the bible has god spoken here it is in the last talk about the bible um we faced a a very simple question what kind of book is the bible is the bible a book by men about god or is it a book from god in some sense to men is it primarily a human authored book or is it primarily a divine authored book. And I offered six marks of this Bible's supernatural origin. I said there was supernatural prophecy, there was a supernatural unity, there was a supernatural insight to the big issues uh, that resonated with our deepest intuitions about reality. I said there was a, an index to history that recorded supernatural events. I mentioned the Bible changes lives in a supernatural fashion, and that the Bible is a, is a fighter as a supernatural survival through time and persecution. But I qualified my point about the Bible's inspiration early on in a way that's really important, because I said that inspiration, what I was making the case for, applies really only to the autographs, that is, only to the originals. But we don't have the originals, do we? We have copies of the originals. Actually, we don't have copies of the original. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of the originals. And that raises uh, uh, a challenge. And the challenge is, look, the Bible, for all that you might say about the divine inspiration of the originals, all of those six points... The Bible was still copied and recopied and recopied so many times. How is it possible to have confidence that what we have now in the scriptures, in the copies, bears any resemblance to the original that you claim was inspired? The Bible's been corrupted through all its translations, all its recopying over centuries. Indeed, that is the number one challenge coming from Muslim critics. The Bible has been corrupted. So how do we know that the words that we have today are the same ancient words that were written back then? And in the case of the New Testament, and that's what I'm going to focus on right now, being, I think, the most critical for making our case. It's got the doctrine, it's got the details, but more importantly, it's got the life of Jesus. And Jesus is the hinge pin to the entire enterprise. Because if the things that are recorded in that book actually took place, well, then Jesus is who he claimed to be. And therefore, all that he said is sound. And those people who he trained to follow after him, the things that they said were sound. And Jesus also gave gave authority and verification to the Hebrew scriptures that came before him. In fact, he quoted from the most embarrassing portions, Adam and Eve, 
Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah and the great fish, etc., etc. So we're going to focus on the challenge of the transmission of the New Testament. Has the Bible been changed or corrupted over time? Now, sometimes it's helpful when you hear the challenge offered you to pose a couple of questions. Because, as I said before, oftentimes when people make challenges, they are, they are just repeating what they've heard. They are not speaking from their own resources, their own research, or their own understanding. They just heard this, and they're passing it on. Remember many years ago, uh, listening to Shirley MacLaine and Larry King. And Shirley MacLaine offhandedly made the comment, well, everybody knows, of course, the Bible's been changed and in all of its translations and retranslations. And Larry King said, oh, yes, yes, everybody knows that. So this is like common knowledge. When I debated Deepak Chopra um, for one hour on national TV, Deepak, the uh, Dr. Chopra, I should say, um, the probably the best-known New Age guru in the, in the world, sold more than 20 million books. Um, he made a comment that the King James Bible is the 13th iteration of the New Testament. And uh, again, advancing this idea that the Bible's been translated and retranslated. Now, what was curious about that comment is that another point in the conversation, he was speaking highly of Jesus, and he was saying he carries around with him in his pocket all the time a, a copy of the Sermon on the Mount. I should have asked him to please pull it out and yeah. show us. But it's, it's a little ironic, isn't it? On the one hand, championing Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount for its noble high ethic. And then later on, when the, the tables get turned a little bit, then he's dismissing the Bible as being just the 13th iteration. Well, that thing he's got in his pocket then was just the 13th iteration, and who knows who wrote that thing that's been changed, etc. in the translations over time. So when people raise that issue, I think you might ask the second Columbo question, if you're familiar with the tactical approach of standard reason. First question, what do you mean by that? Ask for clarification. The second question, reversing the burden of proof. That is, you're going to ask for the reasons that they're making their claim. So you might just ask when people say, well, the Bible's been changed, ask them, how did you come to that conclusion? Or have you actually studied the history of the ancient documents? I remember asking that question to a waitress once who had raised this issue. And she, she just looked at me like, what are you talking about? Now, I presume that that was my question to her. What are you talking about? Now, I didn't want to be rude, but I was trying to test to see whether she really knew something. How was the Bible handed down, as you understand it? How did the transmission take place? Um, when you think about, and I think people think that the Bible's been translated then into one language, then that language gets translated into another, and that into another, into another, and then you go through all these translation iterations, which is what I think Dr. Chopra had in mind, and... Um, and then what you have left is a mess. And I mentioned to Dr. Chopra on that show that our New Testaments are translated directly now from the ancient Greek. 
And he, he looked at me like he'd never heard of that before, which he may not have. There's just one step of translation, not multiple steps of translation in between. So most people simply don't know what they're talking about. And if you offer a challenge in response, um, that sometimes takes the wind out of their sails. Now, it helps if you know a little bit about this, and that's what I want to talk to you about now. And this used to be a settled issue. That is, this was not discussed for a long time in academic circles because the facts were in. And the academic assessment was that the Bible hasn't been changed. But then an author who was a specialist in the field named Bart Ehrman came along in 2005 or thereabouts and published a book called Misquoting Jesus. And that started this whole thing up again. And so we need to address it. Um, by the way, one of the reasons why this became a big deal again is because Bart Ehrman was uh, and is a, a, a bona fide scholar in this field. He was trained by Bruce, uh, Bruce Metzger, who was probably the world's foremost authority on this issue. Uh, Bruce Metzger died in 2007. Um, but he wrote the uh, the text of the New Testament. And around 2005, actually, when Ehrman published his book, Misquoting Jesus, a new edition of the text of the New Testament came out that was co-authored by Bruce Metzger and Bart Ehrman, which comes up with completely different conclusions than his popular book, Misquoting Jesus. So it's kind of, which Bart Ehrman, are you talking about here? In any event, um, very few people read the text of the New Testament by Bruce Metzger and Bart Ehrman. Lots and lots of people wrote misquoting Jesus because that's the kind of thing that's going to get the attention of a popular audience, and it did. So, uh, and, and to be fair, there is a concern here. It, it, it is um, a legitimate question. So we should be talking about it. Now, what I'm about to share with you, I actually wrote in an article, um, covered most of these bases in response to Bart Ehrman. And the article was published by Stand to Reason in our newsletter, Solid Ground, in September 2010. It's called Misquoting Jesus? Question <laughs> mark. Really? Let's take a closer look is the idea. So you can find, if you just search with the same title at str.org, you'll get this full article and you're welcome to it. And if you're not taking notes very quickly here, that's all right. The whole thing is available here. Here's the problem. No originals exist of any classical writer. The Bible, Tacitus, Josephus, Homer, Pliny, anybody. They don't exist. The reason is, is because they're written on parchment, which is or vellum in some cases, but neither of them was, was very, none of that was very durable, and certainly over time, these things just dissipated and disappeared. And until the advent of the printing press, in order to keep these things, by the way, they had to be copied and recopied and recopied, and all copies were made by hand. And um, seems reasonable to expect that errors in transmission would occur. And some people will cite 
the telephone game where you line up a group of people or put them in a circle and one person is given a message in print that whispers into the ear of the next person and then they keep transmitting that message around the circle and the last person takes what he or she thought they heard and writes it down and you compare the two messages and then you have a big laugh because they're so different. Now, this is a true story. I actually played a telephone game when I was in high school. That's how old I am, okay? Because <laughs> no one would find that game the least bit interesting nowadays. Just advance the text. But when people think of that, they think of, see how changes happen. Things change in the process of communication. And there's another little detail that's a little bit unsettling. And Ehrman is quick to point this out. There are more variants in the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. There are 130,000 words in the New Testament. There are more than 400,000 variations. And that's a round number. There's so many of them, they can't even keep track. But that's a lot of variations. And when you hear that statistic, which is an accurate statistic, yeah, yeah, that kind of takes the wind out of your sails. And anybody listening, they don't need to read the rest of the book. That's enough for them. And we know that some of those vari variations were done on purpose by scribes. But there's a fundamental misunderstanding in the telephone game illustration that makes a big difference in how we assess this. And one of them, there are actually two distinctions. First, the telephone game assumes a kind of linear transmission. One to 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 one. Okay? That's the first dissimilarity, as you'll see. The second one is it presumes oral communication, not written. When we're talking about the manuscripts, though, we are talking about writing. So uh, what I like to do is, I, in, in a fairly simple way, I want to explain to you a little bit about how textual criticism works. Because I think in a lot of people's minds, just to try to imagine how a document I have now that is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy over thousands of years, could how could we have the faintest clue that it reflects what the original rendering was. And so I want to tell you about Aunt Sally's secret sauce. Aunt Sally, who is a fictitious character, getting older, getting troubled, wanted to live young and strong, vibrant, beautiful for a long time. And so she started experimenting with elixirs. And she actually stumbled upon a fairly complex recipe that if put together just so, kept her looking really fine. And she not only enjoyed it for herself, but she wrote down, of course, the recipe and had a couple of girlfriends that she didn't want to outpace her, you know. And so they all started taking it feeling good. One day, though, she ran out of her sauce, Aunt Sally's secret sauce, 
and uh, decided to make a new batch and realized that something had happened to her recipe. She couldn't find it. Actually, she did discover what happened. There in the corner, her schnauzer had munched it to pieces and had little pieces of the recipe in its whiskers. So Aunt Sally's silly schnauzer had swallowed the script. <laughs> That's pretty stupid, isn't it? I like that line, though. So she figured she got to get her recipe, but she realized, oh, my friends have the recipe. I'll contact my friends. I'll get an accurate re- rendering of the original because now they don't, the original's gone. Her friends have copies. And as she contacted each one of her friends, amazingly, each one ha- ha- had undergone some kind of similar problem. They, they, th- their copies got destroyed. But they remembered that they had told some other friends who had told some other friends who had copied this down. And so the goal was to go out there amongst their friends to find those who still had some copy, even of a copy of a copy, and bring it back and to try to reconstruct the original because you had to get the parts, the recipe just right or it wouldn't work. And it turned out that when she, she, she gathered all the copies, they had eight copies, and she looked at them. What, what if it turned out that all of these copies, even though they were removed a couple of generations from the original, what if it turned out that all of these eight copies read exactly the same? Well, would you be able to recover the original? Yeah, there it is, essentially, the content. It, for all intents and purposes, that is an original because it has the exact same information. So you would be able to do that if they all read the same. What if you didn't have eight? What if you had 16 copies because it went out a number of generations, and it turned out they weren't all exactly the same? What if if they all agreed except that one had two phrases inverted? Do you think you'd be able to reconstruct the original? Well, yeah, you'd figure that most people got it right, and this screwball got it wrong. We just fixed that, okay? What if there were 32 copies and all agreed exactly except that three had phrases in a different order, one had two words misspelled? Could you reconstruct the original? Yeah, so it it is conceivable that with the right textual evidence, okay, that is the copies that you have before you, even if they're multiple generations removed, you could be confident of reconstructing the original given certain circumstances. Now, if everyone was completely different, you'd be lost, right? But you can see how it's possible. And this is exactly how textual criticism works. You look closely at all the existing copies available, and you compare them, and then you draw conclusions based on the evidence before you on what is the most likely rendering of the original. And, and look at, this is something, and I've never done this, but I think it would be a great exercise. So if you're, if you got middle schoolers and you, and you want to, you want to teach them something about this process, let's say you had 50 kids in a class or something like that, middle schoolers. So what you do is you write a complicated number of paragraphs on the board. 
And then you tell the class, you say, um, I want you to copy precisely and exactly what is on the board. And your grade depends on how well you copy. So they all copy it. Then you erase the board. And then you have everybody switch copies and get out another piece of paper. And say, okay, I want you to all copy your neighbor's paper. And once they all copy, same conditions, they all copy their neighbor's paper, then you destroy the, 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 the second generation. And then you do it again. And you can do this three or four or five times. Okay? And then when you're all done, having destroyed all of those iterations, all of those generations, do you think you'll be able to construct what was originally on the board? The students will be able to do it. They'll be able to compare all those pieces, and I guarantee you there's going to be a couple of knuckleheads in every class. And they're going to know who they are. Because the knuckleheads are going to stray. And you're probably going to have some misspelled words, which is inconsequential. Because you still, even with the misspellings, you can reconstruct the original. Now, that's the way all documents of antiquity are tested, not just the Bible. Uh, secular documents like those historians I mentioned, Tacitus, Pliny, Caesars, Gallic Wars, um, Josephus, even Shakespeare, for goodness sake. We don't have any originals of Shakespeare. And he came a long time after, you know, another 1,500 years or so. They still apply textual criticism, also known as lower criticism, to determine the extent of possible corruption. And if you are a Shakespeare aficionado, you know that in Shakespeare, there's quite a number of things where you've got variant readings, and they're not really sure what the original one was. So that's a problem that you face with all literature of antiquity. So here's our key question, though. Regardless of the raw number of variants, can we recover the original reading with confidence? Okay, and that depends on three factors. The first factor is, how many copies do you have? If you got 10, 15, 20 copies of an, of, of an ancient, of, of, a, of a document that's, whose original is maybe 1,000, 2,000, 2,500 years old, well, that's not very many because there could have been a lot of changes over the time and you, if you only got a couple, few dozen of them, not very rich manuscript um, resource there, okay? So it depends, if, but if you had maybe 1,000, 1,500, wow, 2,000, can you see now that the more manuscripts that you have, the more likely it is that you'll be able to recover the original wording. Okay, so that's one concern. More copies, more reliable result. Fewer copies, less reliable result. Two, how close in time are the oldest existing documents to the original? So if the original is 2,000 years ago, and your oldest documents that you possess right now are a thousand years old, that means you've got a thousand years of possible corruption. You can only get within a thousand years of that original document. If you can get 500 years closer, if you can get within 200 years, 
Well, that's much better. So the more documents you have and the older the copies are, the better. Here's the third thing. What is the nature of the differences between the copies? What is the nature of the differences? How, not all differences have equal impact on reconstructing the original. So those are the three concerns. Let's talk about documents from antiquity. For most documents from antiquity, there really is a limited number of, of, of copies that exist and they exist within a 500 to 1500 year time gap. So I'm just going to give you probably the most popular ones. There's lots of them we could point to, but this is, this is a classical analysis or analysis of classical material. Like I said, they, they do this with all kinds of things. Plato's writings, Plato wrote in 400 BC, and um, we have 210 copies existing now. As time goes on, by the way, they find more of these. I just updated my numbers tonight. <clears throat> 210 copies. The time gap to the earliest copy is 1,300 years. That's a lot. But people have a pretty uh, high level of confidence that they, that they have a fair representation of Plato's originally, original writings. <clears throat> Caesar's Gallic Wars, written 1st uh, century B.C., 251 copies in existence. The time gap to the earliest copy, almost 1,000 years, 950. Tacitus Annals, AD 100, 33 copies, time gap, 750 to 950 years. Okay. Homer's Iliad. Uh, Homer's Iliad is the biggie because um, the, Homer's Iliad was like, um, it was like the, the, the Harry Potter of ancient times. It was the bestseller. Everybody is reading it. And uh, so it's not unusual for um, fragments or portions of Homer's Iliad to show up in, in, uh, in, in unusual places. Uh, right now, uh, 1,750 copies or portions of Homer's Iliad exist. The time gap to the earliest copy is 400 years. Okay, that's, re that's really good. And uh, I've actually been present when two, cop two copies of Homer's I Iliad were actually discovered. Um, that was kind of exciting. Okay, so that's the secular stuff. These are all things, Plato, Caesar, Tacitus, Homer, that even with the, the, the number of copies I just mentioned and the time gap, scholars are pretty confident they've got an accurate rendering of the original. What about the Bible? Well, there are actually three categories of documents. Let's just talk about the Greek manuscripts because the originals were written in Greek. That's the most important. The number of surviving Greek manuscripts as of about three or four years ago, and these numbers, again, have been changing. So mine are just, uh, actually, I got 2010 here. So this is five years old. So these are outdated. There's more than what I'm going to tell you. You have different categories. You've got unsealed parchments. Unseals are Greek documents written in all capital letters. You might have seen pictures of this. They look rather grand and they're, they're ornate and all caps. Okay, no spaces, no punctuation marks. That's just the way they did it because they didn't want to waste vellum or parchment. So you have unseals. Um, you have minuscules. Minuscules are documents that are written in lowercase, if you will, letters. Okay. Uh, you also have lectionaries, uh, that's fixed portions of the New Testament that are read every Sunday, 
and you have papyri fragments, papyri, small pieces of paper that survive. Sometimes they're just little pieces. What's the numbering? Well, unsealed parchments, we have 320 of them. Minuscules, we have 2,903. I'll give you a total number in a minute so you don't have to get all the details. Lectionaries, 2,445. Papyri fragments, 127. What does that add up to? Remember I said that Plato had 210, Caesar 251, Tacitus 33, Homer's Iliad 1750. There are nearly 5,800 existing copies of portions of the Greek New Testament that we know about that have been cataloged. We got a lot more that are still in the process. They're coming down the, the pike that have been discovered. They haven't been cataloged. We got 5,800 catalogs. Now, I don't want to overstate this. When we speak of manuscripts here, we're not necessarily speaking of complete manuscripts, but portions. Um, even so, the average Greek manuscript is 459 pages. That's a lot. But even if we have smaller portions, there are great help in substantiating the integrity of the full copies. Uh, three of the unseals, for example, famous ones. We have complete... Uh, New Testament texts. Uh, they go to the 4th and the 5th century. Codex Alexandrinus, uh, Codex Sinaiticus, and Codex Vaticanus. Sinaiticus has a fabulous history. It's discovered at uh, St. Catherine's Monastery there at Mount Sinai. Um, and there's been a lot more stuff discovered there too. But I've actually seen two of these, Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus. If you go to London, you can see them in the Brit British Museum. They're sitting right next to each other. It's a stunner. And these go back within 400 years of the original. 34 minuscule manuscripts contain the entire New Testament. Two other unsealed manuscripts and another 147 minuscules contain the entire New Testament except for the book of Revelation. In total, we have 186 virtually complete New Testaments. We have two and a half million pages of Greek texts. In fact, uh, Walt, um, Daniel Wallace, who's probably the world's expert in these texts, um, says if you take the average amount of texts available for the classical Greek writer, like some of that I mentioned, you, you would be able to stack all the text, texts up and it would be about four and a half feet. What do you get when you stack the biblical text up? They're a mile high. That's the comparison. And St. Catherine's recently discovered 1,200 manuscripts in a hidden room. This still happens. And in addition to 50,000 fragments of manuscripts that have not even been examined yet. There is so much stuff laying around that hasn't, that hasn't been looked at in addition to these numbers. And that's not all we have. Oh, by the way, the I mentioned some of the dates, full New Testament codices. Now, codices is, New Testament was written in, in individual letters or accounts of Jesus' life. Well, after a couple hundred years, Christians started to put these individually circulating letters together, sewing them into books like the New Testament. And these are called codices. So when we have a codex, that is a, 
a number of these New Testament books that are together. I mentioned Codex, Sinaiticus, and Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus. Uh, but we have full New Testament codices from the 3rd and 4th century. That's 250 to a 350-year gap. That's unbelievable. We have fragments that go back to the beginning of the, of the 2nd century. One fragment called the John Ryland Papyri. It's a fragment of the Gospel of John. It's dated at 125. It was found in Egypt. John wrote the Gospel of John probably around 90. That collapses the time frame to under 50 years. This is unheard of in terms of classical textual evidence. We have 125 from the first five centuries, which is 2.5% of the total. 65% of the manuscripts are from the 11th to the 14th centuries. We have 43% of New Testament verses in manuscripts between 100 and 200 A.D. Half of the New Testament is attested within 100 to 200 years after the originals. Actually, it would be, that would be not 100. It was, it'd be actually between 50 and 75 years of the original, actually. In addition to that, we have two other cross-checks on accuracy. So I've just been talking about the Greek manuscripts. We also have versions. Versions are translations. The Latin Vulgate. Probably the most well-known translation because it's what people use for about a thousand years up until actually almost to the King James Version. We have Slavic translation. We have the Syriac. We have the Armenian. We have Ethiopic. We have a total of over 15,000 translations, copies of translations. Now, this is a translation. It's not the original, but, you know, these are helpful cross-checks. Not only that, we have quotations of the early church fathers, 36,000 citations. For example, when I give a sermon or something like that, there are notes for the sermon, maybe in your church as well. Get the notes, and there are verses in the notes, right? So you have little segments of the scripture right there in your notes. Well, the, the church fathers did that too. They wrote about passages, and they put verses in their writing. So we have all of this collection of the church fathers' writings, and if all of the New Testament, the 5,800 manuscripts were destroyed, and all of the rest of them that are sitting around on shelves or whatever, waiting to be cataloged, destroyed, and if all of the 15,000 translations were destroyed, we could still reconstruct almost the entire New Testament, shy 11 verses, okay, just from the citations of the early church fathers. Do you realize that we have an unbelievable wealth of information to draw from? Like nothing else in any work from antiquity. And when you have a massive amount of manuscripts to draw from, manuscripts that go back very, very close to the autographs, you are much more likely to get an accurate rendering. But there's another problem. When you have lots of manuscripts, you're going to have lots of variants. The fact that we have 400,000 variants is due to the fact that we have so many manuscripts. This is a good problem 
not a bad problem. Of course, how do we answer Airman's challenge? 400,000 variants, only what, what did I say? Uh, uh, 170,000 verses or, or words in the New Testament. How do you deal with that? Okay, this is where this third issue comes in. The first one was the number. The second one was the age. The third one is the nature of the differences. So let's look at Bart Ehrman's challenge, and that's what he is big on, all of these differences. What is a variant? According to Dan Wallace, and this is actually quite simple, a textual variant is simply any difference from a standard text, a printed text, a particular manuscript, whatever. Whatever you say, this is going to be the standard we're going to compare all the rest to. Any variation is going to be a variant. So if you have a hundred other texts that vary in one point from this standard, that's a hundred variants. This would involve spelling, word order, omission, addition, substitution, or even a rewrite of the text. Any difference, no matter how slight, is added to that total count of 400,000. So how do we deal with all that? Remember what our goal is. Our goal is to reconstruct the original. And in reconstructing the original, all variants don't have the same effect. So I want you to think of three types of variations. You have insignificant variations. You have variations that are significant but not viable. And then you have variations that are significant and viable. I'll explain what I mean by those, but let me give them to you again. You have variations that are not significant. When I say they're not significant, I mean they are not significant regarding the task of reconstructing the original. This is a kind of variant that has no impact on us understanding what the original rendering was, okay? Then you have significant variations, but ones that are not viable. They're not reasonable candidates for the original. And then the third category are significant variations that are viable. That is, you have a real competition here about what the original actually said. Let's take them one by one. Variations that are insignificant, variations that don't change the meaning of the original at all, like spelling. You're going to have all kinds of spelling variations in ancient documents. Every single time you have a spelling variation, it's a variant. You ever do your I-E words? I before E, except for after C? Yeah, sometimes that gets a little confusing, right? Well, you have the same thing in the New Testament. They get their diphthongs screwed up and mismatched. Actually, in a lot of cases, there wasn't a standard for spelling. Some spelled according to a standard. Others just spelled phonetically, kind of like people do now when they text. Okay? You understand, though, that variations in spelling are not going to have any bearing whatsoever on the ability to reconstruct the original. All right? So this is a variation that is insignificant. By the way, just for the record, over half of the 400,000 variants are spelling differences. Spelling errors, that's it. You also have things that are abbreviations. 
Okay. You write doctor or dr dot. It doesn't change the meaning at all. You have nonsense readings, like sometimes there's a skipped line. These are insignificant. You have inconsequential word order. You know, sometimes in the text it says Jesus Christ. Sometimes it says Christ Jesus. Sometimes the text refers to James with no article. Sometimes it refers to the James. They put a definite article in there. None of those variations has any relevancy to the reconstruction of the original. Okay. So we have lots of variations. It turns out the majority of variations are completely insignificant to the task of reconstructing the original. Now, you have some variations that are significant, but they're not viable. These are called singular readings. Um, So you have lots of variations, thousands of them, that show up in one manuscript and show up nowhere else. I think you see that when given 5,800 manuscripts or portions of the New Testament, if there's a variant that shows up in one place, this is not something anybody's going to take seriously. Well, sometimes variants are not viable because there are infrequent readings that they're not singular, but there's just not enough to take seriously. There's a famous one actually in the in First John chapter five, and it shows up in the King James version. If you have one of those, there is a verse that looks like it supports the Trinity. And in all of our other translations, you're not going to find that first. And the reason is, is because it only shows up in four manuscripts. It did show up in the King James, um, but it doesn't show up anywhere else. And so this is why scholars, I think, rightly conclude that this was not an original rendering. Finally, we have variations that are significant. That is, they're meaningful. They do affect the meaning of the text, and they're viable. They're in the running. Um, now, keep in mind, when I say that they're, they're meaningful, I, I mean that they're meaningful for the reading of the text. I do not mean that they necessarily are theologically meaningful. So when, um, if the text were to say, and I'm just making this up, that John the Baptist was uh, baptizing in the Jordan, or in the South Jordan, or something like that. But then another text says John the Baptist was baptizing in the North Jordan. Well, that's a significant difference. And if we have lots on either side of that, they're viable. Okay, they mean something different, and they're viable. We don't know which one's which. But do you see how that has no theological bearing at all? So it turns out in this final category, those things that are both significant, that is meaningful to to reconstructing the original and viable, they're in the running. Um, There are lots of things that aren't even theologically significant. But in this last category, much less, according to Wallace, much less than 1% of all the variants. And even with those, Wallace says the vast majority are so theologically insignificant, they are relatively boring. Now, Of course, the question has to be answered, which one is the most likely? And this is where the the art of textual criticism comes into play. And academics who are specialists, like Bart Ehrman, apply the rules of textual criticism to determine what's that minuscule portion that is still left. 
which reading is the best reading and which isn't. And this is why most scholars have concluded that, say, the long ending of Mark doesn't belong there from verse 9 to the end. In your manuscripts, your Bibles will mention this in the, in the margin. Um, the, the famous story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, end of John chapter 7, at least in our Bibles, and most of John, beginning of John chapter 8, I say most our Bibles, most of our Bibles, because in the manuscripts, that actually appears in different places, not in that section of John. But if you look in your own marginal rendering, they'll say, they'll say that most early manuscripts do not include this account. So we know that there are a number of popular accounts that are, are simply not sound as being part of the original. We already know that. So we can eliminate them, at least from our consideration, because the science of textual criticism allows that. So what are the academic conclusions from the evidence? And this is really where the rubber meets the road. Virtually all of the 400,000 differences in the New Testament documents, spelling errors, inverted words, non-viable variants, and the like, are completely inconsequential to the task of reconstructing the original. Of the remaining differences, virtually all yield to a vigorous application of the accepted canons of textual criticism, which means that our New Testaments, what we have in our laps, are 99.99% textually pure. That is, in the entire New Testament, 20,000 lines, only 40 are endowed, about 400 words, and none affects any significant doctrine. Greek scholar D.A. Carson sums it this way, the purity of the text is of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. Can we reproduce the original New Testament to a high degree of certainty? The answer is yes, we can. <clears throat> Has the New Testament been altered? Critical academic analysis says that the Bible has not been changed. In fact, Dan Wallace says, in 130 years, there has not been a single new manuscript reading that scholars think is correct. Now, does this prove the Bible's the word of God? Well, uh, not by itself, but I think accurate transmission is a necessary first condition. And look at Shakespeare's writings has 20% corruption just after a few hundred years. I think you ought to ask yourself the question, what kind of power kept the New Testament documents 99.9% pure for 2,000 years? At least this is a powerful suggestion that something supernatural is going on here. Now, there are two other objections I want to deal with very, very quickly here that uh, you're, you're probably going to run into. And the first one, well, the, the Bible was only written by men. And men make mistakes. I have a, a standard question that I ask every time this challenge is offered. The Bible's only written by men. Men make mistakes. My question is, do you have any books in your library? Of course. Second question, who wrote them? Well, human beings wrote those books. But just because human beings wrote the books doesn't mean we toss them out. 
We understand that human beings, yeah, they're capable of error. They're also capable of writing things that are worthwhile. That's why we read books. We don't dismiss it because, oh, that was written by a human. I only read things written by aliens. I mean, this is crazy. It doesn't follow that because the Bible was written by men, that it therefore must be an error. Human error is possible. It's not necessary. And people write things that are sound and truthful all the time. Second problem, though, is this kind of circular reasoning. Because the case that I was trying to make regarding the authority of the Bible in our last talk, those six stamps of the supernatural, these are things that we see in the copies, the manuscripts that we own now, which we have good reason to believe reflect the original. But it's the copies. And look at if the copies bear the stamps of the supernatural, that gives us confidence that man isn't messing it up. Uh, the whole point here to show the divine authority of the scriptures is to show that God's in charge of it. God is superintending the, pro the process. God is the one that will guarantee the results. So if we have good reason to believe God is involved, then we have good reason to believe that he's going to keep man from messing it up, is basically what I'm arguing. You might ask, are you suggesting that if God does exist, that he's not capable of writing what he wants through imperfect men? I mean, to put it in a kind of funny way, do you have a dog? Yeah. Can you get your dog to sit? Sure. Well, if you can get your dumb dog to sit, what, what makes you think God can't get man to write what he wants him to write, for goodness sake? It's not hard for God. And if we have good evidence that God's involved, that turns out to be the same evidence that man didn't screw it up. If you first establish that the Bible is inspired, as we've been doing, then the second problem, human involvement, is not a problem. And if God inspires the text, it doesn't matter whether men or monkeys wrote it, okay? God could still get the job done. Here's another way of stating it. If you want a syllogism, God can't err. The Bible's God's word. Therefore, the Bible can't err, even if men are involved. God secures it, okay? The other challenge is um, the Bible is just a matter of your own interpretation. Well, that's just a matter of your own interpretation. Well, I mean, in a certain sense, uh, this is a, a legitimate concern because any time we assess any communication, we have to interpret it. You are interpreting what I'm saying right now. You have no other choice you take the language that I'm giving to you and you're trying to figure out what's going in, on in my mind, the thoughts I'm trying to communicate through the medium of language. Everybody's got to do that. So in a certain sense, all communication is a matter of interpretation. But I think the problem here is when people say that's just a matter of your interpretation. And they are kind of dismissing your view just out of hand without a closer look. They don't like what you say, so they say, well, that's your interpretation. And I think in that case, it's not a fair objection. It's a dismissal. Um, the, if this were a genuine concern, I think the person would be able to answer the following question.
can you please explain to me why the interpretation I've just offered you is not a good or fair or truthful inference from the text? Sure, the Bible requires interpreting. Tell me why you think my interpretation is not a good one in light of the text. And see, I think this challenge is a relativizing challenge. People hear your view, they don't like it, so they just dismiss it. You have your interpretation, I have my interpretation, he has his interpretation. It's almost like saying all interpretations are equally valid. Now, sometimes I've kind of gone out on a limb with people, and when they've offered this, and I feel like it's a disingenuous dismissal, I'll say, I might say something like, Gee, I'm sorry to hear that you hate homosexuals so much. And their response, of course, is, well, I didn't say anything about homosexuals. Where'd you get that from? And I'll say, well, that's my interpretation. Now, the point is to make clear that not every interpretation of somebody's statement is legitimate. Whatever your interpretation is, it's got to be tied to the words itself. So let's just go back to the words. And if we have something that Jesus said, and people don't think it's a good interpretation, I think it's fair uh, uh, to go back to the text. Hey, let's take John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Or John 8.24. I say, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sins, For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves or robbers. I am the door. If you enter through me, you shall be saved. Now, that's Jesus. Um, That doesn't sound to me consistent with all roads lead to Rome. All religions are equally valid. If you want to read that in there, you're welcome to it, but it doesn't strike me as legitimate. Look, at most important verses are pretty clear. And if you're careful to follow a rule that we harp on actually quite a bit at Standard Reason, never read a Bible verse. That is, if you want to understand the verse, you're going to read for and after that verse. You read a paragraph at least, or maybe even a page, to get the flow of thought so you can feel reasonably confident you're getting the right meaning. If you follow that, a lot of the interpretation problems get cleared up. Someone once said, some things I don't understand. Some things I think I understand. And there are some things it's impossible to misunderstand. The important things in Scripture are usually pretty clear, especially if we're careful to mind the context. Let me pull this all together here. I've tried to make a cumulative case for the supernatural origin of the Bible. I've also tried to make clear something about the process of textual criticism and the kind of resources that we have at our disposal to reconstruct the original that disappeared 2,000 years ago, and all we have are later generations of copies. And I hope I've done that in a way to show you that if you dismiss the reliability of the manuscripts of the New Testament, you have to throw out, by the same standard, 
all documents of antiquity. And that's a pretty high price to pay. Scholars who think that other documents of antiquity are reliable given the manuscript evidence have got to acknowledge that the New Testament is far and away more reliable because the manuscript evidence is so much more rich. I've also tried to show that the challenges that the Bible was only written by man or that it's just a matter of interpretation, these challenges aren't going to go through. They're not adequate to undermine the authority of Scripture. Ultimately, though, each person has got to wrestle with the evidence for themselves. The question is, has God spoken? My encouragement is to embrace the book and you decide. Got a lot of academic things on the side of Scripture, but ultimately it comes down to a personal decision. You decide. But I think the evidence speaks for itself.